God is good, amen. Thank the Lord for his presence. I'm going to go ahead and share the word, and then we're going to have a break. We'll have a brief break when I'm finished, and then uh, we'll have some more time in the word. Our theme for the, uh, the weekend is being the church. Amen? Notice that it doesn't say going to church, attending a church. It says being the church. And hopefully we're going to learn this weekend a little bit about what does that really mean to be the church. I'm not going to open with one, well, I'll open with one text, but we're going to look at a lot of different scriptures. Go to Acts chapter 2. You all know the story, right? Say right. You've got to be with me here. In Acts 2, the Holy Ghost comes down. They all speak in tongues. People freak out. Thank you. And Peter gets up and preaches, and many people get saved. Then they get baptized. They were having an awesome time. And then, toward the end of the chapter, we read this in verse 41. And when those who received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine... And fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear or reverence came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added, and my version says, added to the church daily those who were being saved. <clears throat> we will look, come back to this text uh, briefly. The title of my talk tonight, or sermon, or message, whatever you want to call it, is The Church and the Word, and the subtitle is Common Life Under the Word. Under the word. You ever heard of Martin Luther? Yes. Important person in history, amen? Yes. As a matter of fact, he was probably more than any person been credited with what's known as the Reformation. Can I get a, a, a copy of the, the booklet? This isn't a copy of the booklet. Thank you. I gotta know what I'm supposed to say. I gotta follow my outline. <laughs> I have notes here, but it doesn't always go with that that outline there. Um, Martin Luther had a f- favorite saying, and it's been quoted numerous times since he said it. And he said, "It's this." He said, "Justification by faith is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls." Let me say it again. Justification by faith is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. Now, I don't know if you've read much about church history, but you ought to read some about the Reformation. Because it was an amazing, uh, um, it was really what it was, it was a revival. A genuine revival of God, where there was a restoration of the preaching of the gospel. And as you look back at church history in the early church, we see the gospels preached in power and in purity. Amen? That's what we see in Acts. The gospels preached clearly. People get saved. They get baptized. They, they become the church. Um, but then over time, the church fell into a period of darkness, relative darkness. There's always been a true church on the earth. Because Jesus said that his church, the gates of hell could not prevail against his church. There would always be a church. But even though Western culture got um, changed in many ways, uh, the church itself became a very dark place. Because the simplicity and purity and power of the gospel was buried under religion. In other words, Christ was lost in Christianity. And so the church grew in, in grandeur and splendor, but it, 
it diminished in genuine power. And so um, what happened was is that the purity of the gospel was abandoned for a, a, a legal system which required many things other than the simple grace of God and faith in the grace of God and faith in Jesus. It became a very complicated, uh, legalistic, religious system. I know this because I grew up in that system. And I know how complicated it is and how stultifying it is to the soul. Even though Jesus was often talked about, you couldn't find him amidst all of the externalities and all of the rituals because the simplicity of the gospel had been abandoned. So Luther, um, you know his story. You know, you know his story, right? He's traveling, and he gets nearly struck by lightning, and he freaks out. He falls down. He says, God, if you let me leave through the storm, I'll dedicate my life to you and all this stuff. Well, he has, a, he has an awakening. He gets saved. He's reading the book of Romans, and he realizes when he reads Romans 1, where it says that the just shall live by faith, he was born again. Just like that. Born again. And so then he, God raised him up, to, and he began to challenge the religious system of his day. I mean, it's hard for us to understand what he did. Because Rome at that time dominated not only the religious scene, because it was the only church in the West, but it dominated the political scene. It dominated the social scene. So God raised up uh, Martin Luther to really strike at, at the, the root, one of the root issues, if not the root issue. And that's why he said the church stands or falls by whether or not it preaches justification by faith. Now, why did he say that? Very simply, because if the church doesn't preach that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ and his blood, if the church doesn't preach that, he said, well, it's not really a church because the church isn't preaching the word. See, when, when, when the Protestant church was born through Luther and others, they had to make a big decision. Do we stay in the, the Catholic church or do we have to leave? And now they didn't want to leave. They wanted a reformation. They wanted to reform it. But as you know, they got kicked out. And so they had to say, okay... Well, is that a true church? Is that a pure church? And if a church doesn't preach the gospel, it can't be a church. Now, there's another reason, though, and I don't think this is primarily what, what Luther was saying. This is primarily what I'm saying. And that's this. The reason, I think we can take this, this sentiment even further than that. Not only that, that justification by faith is, is foundational, but I think it's fair to say that the word of God itself is foundational to the church. Amen. Now, um, some people object to that because what they say is Jesus is the foundation, not the word. Well, what did you say? I want to hear it. He, thank you, brother. He is the word. He is the word. And if we, say, if we try to pit the written word against the living word, we're setting up a false dichotomy. Right? It's an oxymoron like efficient government or something. You know what I mean? It's just, you, you, you can't put those two words in the same sentence. You can't set up Jesus against the word because he is the word. And so if the word is not being preached then Jesus isn't being preached. And if Jesus isn't being preached, then there's not going to be a church. Because what is the church? The church is the body of Jesus. It's the body of Christ. And so the word is the foundation in that regard. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing we have to understand. In Corinthians, Paul challenges the Corinthians. And, and, he, and you know what he says to them? He says... He's expressing his concern for them. And he says in so many words, if somebody comes to you and preaches another Jesus than the one I've been preaching, I fear you might accept him. Yeah. Well, you know what that means? 
that when it comes to the proclamation of Jesus, there are all kinds of Jesuses. When I was younger, and I know you think it was a long time ago, but when I was younger, and the Jesus movement started, you know, when people grew their hair long and took a guitar and sat on the beach and sang Jesus songs, it was a, it was a, it was a worldwide youth phenomenon. It was a real revival. But out of that grew weird ideas. Like, you know, Jesus was like a guru. Jesus was a hippie. Then we got into the phase where Jesus was a socialist. And then we got into the phase where Jesus was an environmentalist. Now Jesus is homosexual. Now Jesus is transgender. You can have all kinds of Jesus. You can make whatever Jesus you want. But it doesn't mean it's the true Jesus. How do you know the real Jesus? We know the real living word through the written word. This book tells me who the real Jesus is. Otherwise, I'd make them my own. I would make them kind of white, middle class, couple cars, two-story house, in the burbs. Hey, because that's what I am. Right? Don't we do that? Yes, we do. We want to make a God after our own image. Yeah. What does God say? Don't do that. Yeah. Worship the Lord your God and Him only. Yeah. You shall make no graven image. Yeah. You shall make no intellectual image. Yeah. But no, the true God has to be worshipped. Plus, the true God has to be worshipped truly. <laughs> truly. And we cannot know Him in truth, without the word. So in that sense, the word's the foundation. So what the word does, number one, is the word calls us and unites us to Christ. When I say the word calls us, I mean the word calls us via the gospel proclamation. When the gospel goes out and we tell people, Christ died for the sins of the world. Christ was the Lamb of God. Christ invites you to come by faith to him for forgiveness of your sins. Christ invites you to come and embrace him as your Savior. We are proclaiming the word of the gospel. And then through the proclaiming of the word, Jesus speaks. When people respond to the gospel, if they're responding to the gospel... They're responding to Jesus Christ, not to the speaker. Did you hear what I said? I can call you to Jesus, and you won't come. Hannah can get up here and run around the stage banging microphones, saying, come to Jesus. And she'd probably do that, by the way. Guess what? You won't come. But when the Spirit of God which is the spirit of Jesus, says to you, come, follow me. You come. You will come. But the church, being the body of Christ, we now become the voice of Jesus speaking to men. So it's our words, but it's his message. It may be our voice, but it's his spirit. That's what what Paul is saying in in Romans 10. He says, how will they believe if they don't have a preacher, right? How are we going to have a preacher if they're not sent? How are they? He goes through this, this list. The point is, God sends the church out. He sends us to speak the word. And when people hear the word, the hearing of faith, they respond not to us, but to Jesus Christ who calls them and says, follow me. So the word calls to Christ because the word is what Jesus uses. Jesus really is the one calling. But the word also unites people to Christ. What do I mean? Uh, We'll come back to Acts in a minute. Look at at James 1, quickly if you will. James chapter 1. In James, he says this. He says every, in verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above 
and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth, or it could be translated, he birthed us, or he gave birth to us, brought us forth by what? The word of truth. The word of truth. That's the gospel. That's why Luther said, you got to preach justification by faith. You got to preach the truth regarding the gospel. And when the when the when it's preached, God uses the word to cause people to be brought forth, or as we like to say today, born again. They're born again. Now you're saying, well, aren't they born again of the Spirit? Yeah, but what does the Spirit use? He uses the word. He uses the word. So we preach the word, and then God uses the preached word through the power of the Spirit to cause people to be born again unto him. So the word is foundational. If if people aren't being born again, then they're not being added to the church. And if the gospel's never preached, and people never are added to the church, then there is no church. So the church stands or falls on the word. Now, the, let's go to our second point, the, the meaning of the church. Now, I've been using the word church quite a bit. And you might be thinking, well, which meaning of the church are you talking about? Because in the scripture and in uh, other books on the Bible, you will run into different words or phrases that are used. And I'm just going to run through these very quickly for you. One is uh, the triumphant church versus the militant, the militant church. The triumphant church is the church in heaven. It's already triumphed. It's not fighting anymore, if you will. And the militant church is then the church on earth, still doing battle with the enemy on earth. Then there's what's known as the invisible church versus the visible church. The invisible church is the church that you can't see because you don't know people's hearts. So, remember Jesus talked about the tares amongst the wheat? And apparently, I'm not a farmer, but I've been told, and I've read, that tares, especially from a distance, look very, almost identical to wheat. So if you were looking at a field of wheat, you'd say, look at all the wheat. But you wouldn't see the tares because they look alike. So you can have tares amongst wheat, Jesus is saying, you can have those that appear to be saved amongst the saved. And so in that sense, the true church is invisible because we can only see what people do. We can only hear what they say. We cannot see their hearts. And in that sense, the church is invisible. Thirdly, the mystical versus the material. This is really... Similar to, to the previous one. But the word mystical here is used in, in the positive sense of spiritual. Those that are truly born of God's spirit. Versus the material church, which is the church which you see in flesh and blood. Then you have the church as an organ versus the church as an organism. Or should I say an organization? Excuse me, an organization. So... Uh, We're told in Scripture that the church is a body. It's a living thing, if you will, the body of Christ. But then the church also has an organization and a structure. And then the last is universal versus local. Universal versus local. So when we talk about the church, the church is really all of those who have been spiritually united to Jesus Christ by being born of God's Spirit, and thus baptized into the body of Christ. That's what we mean by the invisible, mystical church, the universal church, the church as an organ. However, and this is really important, the church is also at the same time those who have banded together in community for the preaching of the word, for the sacraments, for fellowship, and for prayer and worship. And that's what is meant by the visible, the material, the organization, and the local church. Now, if you don't hear anything else tonight, I want you to hear this, because this is, this is an important point. You ready? Yeah. Ready. Good. The important point I want you to hear is this. In the New Testament, or should I say, the New Testament, never envisions 
the divorce of these two aspects of the church. Let me put it another way. The modern notion of an unchurched Christian is unthinkable according to the Bible. An unchurched Christian is a genuine oxymoron. According to Scripture, there is no such thing. According to the Bible, there are only three reasons that a Christian is ever outside the church. The first is apostasy. Apostasy is those who deny the faith and depart from the faith. And thus, they leave. John, 1 John talks about this, where he says, They went out from us because they were never of us. The second reason that some are outside the church is because they've been put out of the church, excommunication. Now, we don't see this in our day very often because we, we don't see church discipline very often. But in the New Testament, recall 1 Corinthians uh, 5, where Paul says to the Corinthians, put the immoral person out. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? And the third reason that some are outside the church is because they have backslidden. They are the sheep that have gone astray. And they've drifted, and they are literally, not just spiritually, but they are literally out of fellowship. They're not in the fellowship because they've drifted out of the fellowship, because they're backsliding. Now, today, number three, which is backsliding, is common. Excommunication almost never happens, and apostasy happens sometimes. But the point I want to make about number three is this. It's not that it's common, but that unfortunately it's often justified. It's often justified by those who don't need the church, as they say. Yet as one author said, I take it that what especially distinguishes the Christian from the philosophical outlook on human virtue and vice is precisely the Christian sense that pride and self-sufficiency is the central, typical sin. This is vitally important. Because those who say, I don't need the church, are actually displaying this fundamental sin of the human heart, of pride and self-sufficiency. I've been in the ministry a long time, and I can tell you from more than 30 years of experience that I have, I have never, never met an unchurched Christian who was consistent in private devotions. I've never met an unmet, uh, unchurched Christian, in other words, who's really growing in grace. Never. Now, when I say unchurched, I understand that someone might move and then they're looking for a church and maybe they don't, they don't attend a church for several months. Or I understand someone has a bad experience at a church and they get wounded and they, they withdraw and they have to kind of maybe heal up or deal with some things before they can enter back into community. I can understand that. That's not what I mean by unchurched. I mean the people that are, uh, who are literally out of fellowship and who justify it who argue for it, uh, and basically would argue that the church is obsolete. Now, I understand that the church in America is a mess. I understand this. Trust me. (laughs) But the problem is is that we we assume that there's this, this, this church somewhere on earth where people aren't fallen. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm attempting to justify any flaws or weaknesses in this church. That's not the point. The point is rather to say that we, we get disillusioned because we come in with an illusion. We come in with expectations which are not biblical. I was inter- interviewing a, uh, an Afro-American pastor a few days ago who's got a couple churches in Illinois. And he said, you know, 
I, I said, tell me one, of, we were talking about racial reconciliation, some other issues, and, but I said, you know, tell me one of the things that, that you've really been trying to teach your body. And you know what he said? He said, I'm trying to get them to understand church is messy. Church is messy. It is. Because we're messy. We all sin. We all fail. At times we're selfish. Sometimes we get angry. Sometimes we're this. Sometimes we're that. And you know, if, if you want to go to a church and sit in the back row and don't get to know anybody really, you can fool yourself into this idea that everybody's doing great. But once you get to know people, you find out, guess what? Everybody's got their thing. Everybody's under construction. Everybody's growing. And that is not an excuse for sin. Okay? It's not an excuse. But if you, if you expect your brother or sister in Christ or your husband and wife never to hurt you or never to offend you or never to sin against you, you will be disillusioned. Yes. Trust me. No excuses, but that's the reality. Now, the other thing I've seen from the unchurched is this, is that they, they almost always fall into some form of heresy. That's the other common thing. They, 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 they get into odd doctrines. I could give you many examples. I can name names of well-known evangelicals who are now writing books about why they don't go to church anymore. How, why they don't need church anymore. But I won't do that. But suffice it to say this, is that the... The true mystical church can't be left. And the material or physical church shouldn't be left. And the thing that we need to understand is this, is that we, each of us individually, we need, you listening? Say yes. yes. One more time. Here you go. Ready? We need the church. Now listen, I'm not done. For the same reasons we don't like it. I want you to think about that a minute. Okay? Now, did you ever pray for love? Did you ever say, God, give me love? I can assure you, you're going to run into somebody obnoxious. They say, God, give me patience. Then you go to Walmart and be in a long line for an hour. I can guarantee you this will happen. Why does it happen? Because that's the only way to learn it. It's like saying, it's like, it's like, it's like, a, um, it's like a, 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 a diamond in the rough comes out, out of the dug up from the ground and, and the diamond says, says, okay, I want to be a beautiful, I want to be a multifaceted, beautiful diamond that can be put in a, in a, in a necklace. And so what, what, what's, what, what does the, uh, what's that? Well, what's the jeweler do to the diamond? Right? And what, what, what's the biblical what's the biblical picture? And it's the potter and the clay. So I'm just a piece of mud. The word of God says that I'm taken out of the dust, and God breathes His life into me, and He gives me a soul. Then the Holy Spirit comes in me, and it, I have the new birth. But I'm still mud. I say, God, I want to be a beautiful vase. I want to be a beautiful pot. I want to be. I want to sit. I want to be a vessel of honor and glory. And so God says, Really? You know not what you ask. No, no, God, I want to be a vessel of honor and glory. I want to do great things for you, God. Use me, God. Shape me, God. And then God says, okay, you asked for it. He puts me on the wheel, spins that sucker really fast, and my life is like out of control. God, what are you doing to me? He puts his hands on me. Begins to shape me. I'm like, that hurts. Get your hands off me. 
And God's like, you asked for it. You wanted to be shaped. You wanted to be beautiful. I'm making you beautiful. Why are you complaining? Because we just like, well, we, we, we just want God to just like go, boom. You're still listening. But it doesn't work that way. So when you go to church, when you really become part of the church, you encounter things that require love, require patience, require forgiveness, require long-suffering, require all of these virtues that are talked about in Scripture. I'm just going to read one section, and there are many texts like this, where Paul says this. He says, put off the old man. Amen, right? Yeah. Put on the new man. Awesome. I want the new man. Yeah. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, that's our position. We are holy and we are beloved by God. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility. You know what humility is? Humility is deferring to others. It's exalting others. It is saying, not my will, but your will. Humility is being a servant. Now, I can reassure you, friends, that if you're not full of the Holy Ghost, you're not going to want to be humble. Because it is contrary to our flesh. Remember, the central sin is what? Pride and self-sufficiency. Right? Humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ also forgave you, so you also must do. He's saying, be like Jesus. Well, Jesus got slaughtered. Jesus got rejected. Jesus was misunderstood, even in his own hometown. But above above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. You know that word bond there? You know how it can be translated? The chains. The chains of perfection. Do you really want to be wearing chains? It doesn't say the bling. No, it says the chain. Do you really want to be wearing chains? No, not really. Because I want to be free. You know why? Because I want to do what I want to do. I want my will. I don't want thy will. The chains of maturity is love, he says. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, plural. This text is written to a community, a body. To which also you are called in one body. And be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's the word. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God and the Father through him. Man, wouldn't you like to be in a community that really walked this out? It would be a beautiful thing. And it would be a very difficult thing at the same time. We need the church for the same reasons we don't like it. Because we are confronted with, you ready? The other. The other. And when we're the church, the first other that we meet is God. God. When I'm in church, when I'm in, in, during worship or in a prayer meeting or something, I'm amazed how at times I'll open my Bible and the Holy Spirit will show me something. I might have read that thing ten times at home that week and it, didn't, it wasn't there. And then I'm in community and it's there. It's because God is confronting me. God is present. And so I meet the other. But the other other is the body. Messy people. Broken people. Sometimes spiritual people. Sometimes victorious people. But people, nonetheless. But in meeting them, I meet Jesus. Because they are his body. They are his body. And so, 
in the church, I'm confronted with Jesus Christ in my brother and in my sister. The well-known existentialist Sartre said this, one of his well-known sayings. You ready? He said, hell is other people. See, he understood man's fundamental nature, which is pride and self-sufficiency. It is, it is our will to always have our will. Other people cross my will. God crosses my will. Speaking of crossing my will, didn't Jesus talk somewhere about a cross? Didn't Jesus say, take up that cross and deny thyself and follow me? Yes, he did. Number three, real quick, and then I'll wrap up. The word of God governs the practices of the church. You know, I was, I was reading an a article by one of these well-known evangelicals that really isn't an evangelical. Um, sold a lot of books and why he doesn't go to church and he says, I don't, I don't like singing, I don't connect with God that way. I'm like, well, if you had the Holy Ghost, you might. He says, I'm just having a blast. He says, I'm having a blast. Well, of course you're having a blast. There's no other. You get to do whatever you want. No one crosses your will. You never hear a word spoken to you that you haven't chosen already to hear. That's a blast. For the carnal man, it's a blast. But it's not the path of growth. Deny thyself, Jesus says. Jesus Jesus says the way to life, what's the path of life? He says it's the narrow path. The broad path, the easy path, he says, is the way to destruction. The narrow path is the path that we should choose. So when I say that the word governs the church, it's real important to understand that, you know, we don't really have the prerogative of saying, okay, let's get together and make church up and do whatever we want. It reminded me of this guy... I used to work with, we were at work one day, and he was a professing Christian. I don't know if he was, because he was kind of strange, but maybe he was, because, you know, God saves the foolish, right? Um, so one day he grabs me. We had like a back room in this place. He says, hey, man, let's have communion. So I said, what do you mean? Here, he gets a, I got a peanut butter jelly sandwich and I got a Coke. Let's have communion. And uh, I said, I said, I, I got to go to the bathroom. I'll, uh, I'll, uh, we'll see about that later. Um, now, you know, if that's all you got, maybe God can do that. But, you know, the point is, is that it's this whole thing like, you know, let's, the, let's make a, a group that we like and call a church. So if we like coffee, we'll have church at Starbucks. Why not? It's that, whole, it's, it's that whole thing of, as if there's no revelation in the word about how to do any of this stuff. I had someone in this congregation share with me a story of someone they knew who went to a church to uh, become a pastor there, or associate pastor, or worship leader, or something, I forget. And when he went to the first board meeting, uh, they had a bowl there, and in this bowl was everybody's keys. And they said, throw your keys in there. And you know what he found out? That at the end of the meeting, the men stuck their hand in the bowl, grabbed the keys, and whatever key they had, they went home to that home. This was a spirit-filled church. True story. We can't make up the rules. That's not our option. 
So when this is what I mean by the word governed, and I used I I chose my words carefully. The church is a community living together under the word. Not over the word. See? Under. And the word, what does it tell us about the practice of the church? Go back to Acts 2. We'll close quickly. I'm sorry I went so long. Acts 2 mentions five practices. And there are others, actually. But just I just want to review these quickly. To make the point that the word is to shape the community, not the community shape the word. There are five practices. The first practice mentioned here is doctrine or teaching. It says that they, 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, or it could be translated teaching, either way, depending on the context. And they, they, they ultimately uh, get to the same thing. They were a community that was focused on the word, and a community that was focused on teaching and learning and growing through the word. Amen? The word has to be central in our community and really in any church. The word has to be central. In many high churches, you'll notice that the, the pulpit is not in the center. It's on the side. And rather, they have an altar in the center. The Reformation changed that because the Reformation moved the altar to the side and put the pulpit in the center. To, to make the point that the word is central and foundational to the church. And one of the marks of the church, according to the reformers, was the true preaching of the word. That means we all need to be true learners of the word, studiers of the word, readers of the word. The word has to be central in our life. The second practice is the practice of fellowship. It says they continue steadfastly in the apostle doctrine and fellowship... Uh, verse 46, it says they're continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Fellowship, community, uh, many different words that could be plugged in here. But when you look at the Greek in the New Testament for the word fellowship, which is koinonia, koinonia, it means partnership, partnership. This is much more deep than what we think of as fellowship. Because partnership involves commitment. Commitment. To truly be the church, we, we don't just attend a church meeting. Rather, we are committed to the people in that community. We're committed. We partner with them in the word, in prayer, in sharing one another's burdens, in sharing one another's physical needs. It talks here how they had all things in common. It's the idea that, that your success is my success. Your failure is my failure. Or as Paul says, when one member suffers, the whole body suffers with it. Because we're not strangers, we're partners. We're partners. The third practice is the breaking of bread. Some think that this means uh, just sharing meals, which uh, is probably true, but others think that it means more than just a common meal, but it means the breaking of bread, meaning uh, the Lord's Supper. And so, therefore, the, the also central to the church is sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, both of which are seen here in chapter 2. Fourthly, prayers. Prayers and worship. It says there in 42, and in the breaking of bread and prayers. And I think the way this sentence is structured, the doctrine and the fellowship are linked together and the breaking of bread and the prayers are linked together. And then you notice that goes, it goes on in verse 46. It says they ate their food with simplicity of heart. 47, praising God and having favor with the people. So we see prayer and praise was a practice of the church. I've said this many times. I'm going to say it one more time. I'm sorry, I'm getting so old, I'm repeating myself. But at least I still have my memory. Okay? That is this. Worship and praise are not preliminary to the sermon. It's not as if that's not really important so I can come to church late. 
because the worship is first. Or that's not really important, so I don't need to really engage. I can, I can use that time to wake up to hear the sermon. No, that's not how it is. Prayer and praise in a community is just as important as the proclamation of the word. St. Ambrose, well-known church father, testified that when he, as an unbeliever, and actually an unbelieving philosopher, went to a Christian church, and he saw the people praising God, he was so convicted that he got saved. Because the way they praised God was an evidence of their deep and profound faith. So when we worship God, not only are we seeking fellowship and communion with him, that's, that's one thing we're doing, but we're doing other things. We're edifying one another. Now, some songs are songs of, of intimate praise. Some songs are songs of confession. Some are songs of declaration and songs of edification. And so when we say these things in, in, in uh, music, put to music, We are speaking, we're letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And we're saying them to one another as well as to ourselves. We're building one another up. by. by, Sometimes when we're singing a song, I don't even sing because I just want to listen to what you're saying to me. Because it's ministering to me. So, I think that, that we... When I say we, maybe not just us, but I think many churches, and I'm not going to be critical, but I think many churches have devalued the importance of worship and praise. And, and because the word is so central, they've made worship subsidiary. Uh, worship not as important. Prayer is not as important. That's not the biblical view. Praise and worship are just as fundamental as the word. The word tells us who to worship, but then we have to worship him. The word shows us the true God, but then we need to give him true praise. Shows us the true Savior, we need to give him true worship and glory. So when, when you gather in this community, come prepared to worship God. Come prepared. Engage your heart, engage your mind, engage your body. Worship. Don't observe others worshiping. Don't wait for the word or wait for the sermon, but engage your affections in worship. As we worship God, let me say one more thing. If, if an unbeliever comes into an assembly and the people in that congregation are not worshiping God, they are bearing bad witness to Jesus Christ. Bad witness. Why should I fall down and worship that Jesus when his own followers won't bow down to him? Why should I, why should I surrender to that Jesus when clearly his own followers aren't surrendered to him? Why should I love that Jesus when clearly these people who say they're his followers, they don't love him? They look bored. Any amens? Amen. Sometimes I worship and engage in worship because I know other people are looking at me. You, you might think, well, that's hypocritical. No, it's not hypocritical. It is, it is what is, I'm doing is I'm surrendering so that I can minister to others yes. by my actions. By my testimony, not by my feelings. And so I choose to do what I believe is best for the body and what is most God-honoring. I understand we all have bad days. Sometimes you might have a bad week. You might have a bad month. I don't know. Maybe you're having a bad year. I don't know. But... Our circumstances don't change who our God is. And when, when we worship, we are declaring who God is. We're not declaring how we feel. We're saying who God is. And he never changes. The same yesterday and today and forever. 
Last practice, and I'll close, is evangelism. It says, if, if you read, the whole, the whole point of chapter 2 is that when the Holy Spirit came down, what did the church do? Yeah, there was an explosion of tongues, but it says that through their tongues that they were glorifying God. Well, you can't glorify God if people don't understand what you're saying. So there, there were people from all around the area with different languages, and God gave them languages, and they spoke, and they praised God, and brought Him glory. And then Peter, what did he get up and do? He got up and he preached the word and he preached Jesus. He preached Jesus. And people got saved. And it says they gather, they pray, they study the word, they, they worship, and God's adding to the church. That's the kind of church I want us to be. Amen? Amen. And that's the kind of church we can be. Because the same spirit of God that fell on the church on the day of Pentecost is the same Spirit of God that dwells in you and me. The same Spirit. So let's stand together. And my conclusion is very, 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 very simple. We are called to be the church. Not to attend or join in the typical sense of the word. We're called to be. So let's bow our heads and have a prayer. And I'm going to ask you in a moment to respond to a very simple question. With everybody's head bowed and eyes closed, the only question I have as we um, conclude this first session is simply this. Do you want to be the church. Or I could phrase it another way. Will you commit yourself to be the church? And if so, just tell me that by raising your hand. Say, I'm going to commit myself to be the church. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you spoke tonight. Not my words are irrelevant, but Lord, your words through your spirit are so good. They're food for our souls. I thank you, Lord, for what you've spoken to us already tonight. I thank you for the response of your people. And Lord, we pray, we, we give you permission to put us on the potter's wheel. We give you permission to put your hands on us, to mold us and shape us. Because we want to be a beautiful vessel, a vessel of of honor and glory to you because we love you, Jesus. We love you. So, Lord, as we learn more this evening about prayer, as we learn tomorrow about community and and justice and the home and, and different aspects of being your people. Oh, Lord, continue to grant us your presence. How we love you, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.